Spirit of the living God, we ask now that you would take the word that you inspired apostles and prophets to write. Drive home to each of us whatever is applicable for where we are today. And we pray the end result will be a deepening of our trust in our Heavenly Father and our wonderful Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Please be seated and take your Bibles. And let's turn to that passage of Scripture that was read for us, Daniel chapter 3. You will note that what was read for us was an abbreviated version. There were a number of parts of the story that were left out of the reading, but we gave to you what we think would be sufficient for a reading so that you got the gist of of what exactly was happening here in Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3 is, in my estimation, justifiably the most famous passage in the Bible, if not in all of human literature. It is certainly loved by kids, kids who till to this day are still fortunate enough uh, to be able to read it and to learn from it. Here's what I want to do this morning. It's fairly simple. I want to take the first part of this message, or maybe the first third of the message, and I want to kind of just talk about uh, what's in the passage. In other words, let's look at what the story says. It's an incredible story. So I'd like to review the story. And uh, the purpose of this will be to give you some background information into certain things, some explanations along the way, um, as much as I can to make the story more vivid in our hearing. Then we're going to move into the second part of the message, and that is to learn from the story. There are some things in this passage, this story. This, remember, this occurs 2,600 years ago. But there are things in it that are so applicable to us today who are seeking to live the gospel in an antagonistic age. And so we'll try to draw out some principles and some things that we see here. Now, just so you know, when I first did the message and the outline that you received, if you picked up a copy when you came in, had seven things that we can learn. And I've, I've had to whittle that down. By the way, I had 14 things before I whittled it down to seven. And I'm not exa- exa- exaggerating. There's so much here in this passage. But I've whittled it down to about three or four of them today. So the first thing we're going to do now is we're going to look at the story and see the seven things that happened. And the first thing is the action of the king. King Nebuchadnezzar, in verse 1, it's very clear what action he took. He made an image, a statue of gold. Um, From the reading this morning, it said 60 cubits high. Some translations put that in feet, 90 feet high, and 9 feet wide. This thing is massive. It's huge. Now, we need to keep in mind that what happens in chapter 3 actually occurs 15 years after what happened in chapter 2. Now, you don't get that as you read the passage immediately, but it becomes clear later, later on that a considerable period of time has passed so that these three young men who were probably 13, 14, 15 years of age in chapter 1 are probably now in their 30s or early 30s at least, still young men. There is a connection, however, between what happens here in chapter 3 and what happened in chapter 2. You remember in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. It's a dream of a man or a statue of a man, and the man is, is made out of various forms of metal. And the head of the statue is gold. The, the upper torso and arms are made out of silver. The, the loins of the man are made out of bronze, and the legs and the feet are made out of iron and clay. And Nebuchadnezzar did not know what this dream was because there's a little rock that comes and smashes the feet of the statue and the whole thing crumbles to the, to the ground. But Daniel was, unable to, was able to interpret it for him and pointed out to him that each of the four different metals represent four successive kingdoms or empires in history from Daniel's day leading right up until the time of the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Daniel said to him, Nebuchadnezzar, you are that head of gold. So what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He he builds a statue completely made out of gold. And um, 
Nebuchadnezzar uh, was amazed at what Daniel had said to him, that he could interpret the dream. If you go to chapter 2, verse 47, Nebuchadnezzar concluded after Daniel had interpreted the dream, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you, you were able to reveal this mystery to me. So Nebuchadnezzar is a little taken back by Dan, Daniel's God, acknowledges this God, uh, but he doesn't obey him or follow him. But the setting up of this massive image of gold in some ways is in accordance with the interpretation that Daniel gave because he builds the statue in gold. But it is in rebellion against the interpretation that Daniel gave in that he makes the whole image gold. What's going on here? Nebuchadnezzar is reasoning in his mind, I am going to defy this God who says that there will be kingdoms that will follow mine. I am the head of gold, and why shouldn't the whole statue be made of gold? Why shouldn't my kingdom last forever? This is an act of defiance against the living God. He won't allow God, as it were, to do what God has planned to do in history. In essence, he's saying, my rule will endure. Now, two things to note here. First of all, this action is a significant one in that chapter 2, verse 21, says something very important about God. This is Daniel praying, asking God to give him the wisdom to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And notice what Daniel says in his praise, in his prayer to God. Chapter 2, verse 21, he changes times and seasons. That is, God does. God sets up kings and opposes them. Daniel makes it very, very clear that it is God who sets kings up in the first place. And so the action here is significant in that Nebuchadnezzar is setting up a statue to represent himself. And actually, if you read the passage through, you will see that the words set up, he set up, was set up, is found about 10 times in this passage. It's found right here in the first verse. He set it up on the plain of Dura. It's found in verse two, last line, the image he had set up. Verse four, as soon as you hear the sound of the music, you must fall down and worship the image of the of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. So over and over again, you, 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 you begin to see that Nebuchadnezzar is wanting to act like God. God sets up kings, so I will set up my own God. This is a defiant declaration on Nebuchadnezzar's part. He is saying, I can do what God can do. He is acting like God. Now, keep in mind that this image statue was functionally designed to represent Nebuchadnezzar's rule and reign. In other words, this statue is a symbol, a symbol that becomes an idol. This symbol represents the greatness of this king. It draws attention to his glory. That's what's happening here. Now the other thing I want to point out to you is that the location in which this happens is significant as well. Verse 1 says that he set up this image on the plain of Dura, on the plain of Dura. This is the Babylonian plain just outside of the city of Babylon itself along the, the river Euphrates. This massive plain in this great, great land of the past. And this is a significant thing because in Genesis chapter 11, verse two, we read that they arrived, the people of the ancient world arrived at this plain, and what did they do there? They set up the Tower of Babel. The massive, massive tower. And the purpose of this tower was, was to bring some kind of a, a forced, uh, unity to the people of the world at that point in time, that they would build something great to make a name for themselves, Moses tells us in Genesis 11. And this tower became that unifying focus of the people of the ancient world, a focus of defiance against the living God. Nebuchadnezzar comes essentially to the same plane and he does the same thing. He sets up a statue to his glory and this statue is to become the unifying focus of his dominion. 
In verse 2, we read that he summons all of the different government officials, and we have this monotonous list of, of all of their names, satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and then and all the other provincial officials. This is to be extensive. His whole government is to, is to bow before him. And in a sense, these government officials, they represent all of the peoples of the Babylonian Empire. Verse 4 talks about peoples, nations, and men of every language. In other words, these are the conquered peoples that Babylon has subjected into their slavery, brought them back to the city to serve the king. And so there is, as it were, this this secular but religious unity that Nebuchadnezzar forces upon the people to consolidate his reign. Friends, in short, he was trying to redo what Babel was all about. And in some ways, he was successful. We read in verse 7, as soon as the people heard the sound, and then you have this list, the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, and all kinds of music. What happens? All the peoples and nations and men of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. He was successful in creating this this facade of unity. Can I just make a couple of comments here? You don't have to pay me for these. These are just on the side. And the first is this, that governments boast all the time about their great diversity, but all they really want is your conformity. Secondly, what happens here is not some mere one-off, never-to-be-repeated event in history. Friends, what we have here is a foreshadowing of the history of the world where government after government and empire after empire comes, all demanding that in some way the government function like God. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't get it. He, he, he can't get past his own glory. Now we come to the next thing, and that is the astrologers of the kingdom make an accusation. And that begins in, in verse 8. These men come, and they make an accusation against the Jews. Now notice it's a denunciation of the Jews. So there were probably other Jews who refused to bow, to bow down. But, but, but there are three Jews that they're going to go after, and these are the three friends of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as they are called. Some astrologers come forward, denounce the Jews. Verse 9, they said to the king, O king, live forever. Verse 10, you've issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, they're all supposed to bow down immediately. Verse 12, but there are some Jews whom you've set over the affairs of the province, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you've set up. We need to point out here that these men uh, were probably jealous of the three young, young men. I, I say that because if you remember, you go back to chapter 1, when Daniel and these three men graduate out of the Babylonian school and they are appointed into King Nebuchadnezzar's court to serve, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar notices, he makes a comment, and he, the comment is that these three men plus Daniel are ten times wiser than all the other wise men who serve. So there's a little bit of a jealousy thing going on here. Uh, They feel intimidated by these men. And then in chapter 2, these so-called wise men could not interpret the king's dream. Daniel did. And so Daniel and the three men get exalted to a higher position. Presumably, these astrologers here had, had been in the service of the king a little bit longer than Daniel and the three others had, and so they, they, they felt that their seniority was being overpassed. And so they have this anger toward these three men. And interestingly, the, the action of Daniel in chapter 2 saved the lives of these men, but now we see that that doesn't matter to them. Their hearts are seething with a resentment toward these Jews. And so they accuse them of treason. And frankly, if you look at verse 12, it, they choose their words very carefully. The words they used are, are designed to provoke a response from Nebuchadnezzar, and the threefold accusation comes forward. The first one is, they pay no attention to you, O king. 
This is a personal, this is a personal affront to you, to your authority as king, to the fact that you are like a God. The second part of the accusation is they neither serve your gods. They don't serve your gods. Nebuchadnezzar, this is an affront to your gods. Nebuchadnezzar, they're attacking your religious beliefs. They think their God is better than yours. Nebuchadnezzar, as a devout pagan to his gods, would have done anything that he possibly could to not offend his gods. And so they were provoking Nebuchadnezzar to act. And of course, the final thing here is that They do not bow down and worship these gods. They tie the two other things together. This gets the attention of the king. And basically what they're saying is, these three Jews, they do not believe that you are the king of the world. They do not believe that you, O king, are godlike. This brings us now to the king's anger. Verse 13 says they were furious or he, he was furious, furious with rage. And right beginning at verse 13 through 15, we have a little bit of what we might call a trial. It's not a trial in the sense that it's impartial or just, but it is a trial. Now, the fact that Nebuchadnezzar would have even brought these, had these three men brought into his presence shows that in some way he he valued them. He knew how significant they were to his administration. I mean, he could have just given the order without hearing from them at all. He could have just given the order, death, and they would have been killed. But he valued them enough to bring them into his presence. And you you almost get a sense that he was hoping that they would comply with what he said. And so he asks them, um, he he says to them, "Is is it true? that you do not serve my gods or worship the image that I have set, set up. And, and before they can even respond, he says, when you hear the sound of the horn, when you hear all these sounds and, the Im- and worship the image, you're, you're, you're going to fall down. If you're ready to fall down and worship the image, that'd be great. In other words, I'm hoping you will really do it. But if you do not, you'll be thrown into the blazing furnace. And then notice the last line of verse 17. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Do you see the audacity? You see the arrogance of this this evil king? What God can save you from me? He is acting like God. But the question that Nebuchadnezzar asks them in this mock trial actually reveals the whole thrust of this passage. It reveals what is actually taking place here. It magnifies the power encounter between the gods of Nebuchadnezzar and the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. A battle is ensuing. It gives the theme, and the theme is, who is able to save? Who is able to deliver? Who is able to rescue? Which god is greater Now, Daniel's friends, these three young men, make an announcement. And it's a a declaration that they give to the king. They reply to the king in verse 16. They say, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. I want you to notice here, they felt no need to defend themselves, but they did feel a need to testify about God. This is faith. We, have no, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing fire, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But, but even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Now, these young men were not rude, but they were direct, and they state their faith and they testify to the greatness of their God. And the reason why they will not bow down to the king or worship his image or any of his gods is because they know that this will violate the, two, the first two commandments that God gave through the prophet Moses. To have no other God before the one true and living God and not to make or bow down or serve or worship an idol of God or of any God. You see, the reason why they refuse to bow is that they are fixed on someone else, and that someone else is God himself. 
Now, there are two very important truths about God here that come from the lips of these three young men. Two important truths. They speak, first of all, of the reality of God's power. Do you see that? If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, verse 17, the God we serve is able to save us from it. The reality of God's power. But that's not all they say. They then say, but even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold. The reality of God's power, but if he does not, they also speak of the mystery of God's purpose. The mystery of God's purpose. These are two very important truths. The reality of God's power, he's able to save. The mystery of God's purpose, he may not deliver us for reasons known only to him. The God who, who, who created the world, the God who brought the universe into being just by simply speaking could intervene. But he may not. And he has his reasons. For God created not just out of his power, but God created out of his wisdom. He is the only wise God. And in his wisdom, he does things in a certain way that you and I cannot fathom. How unsearchable are God's ways. How unknowable his wisdom. That's what is happening here. The important thing to know, though, really, is that Nebuchadnezzar, they want Nebuchadnezzar to know, is that they are more determined to follow their God and to acknowledge him as the true king and the one true and only God than they are to follow a phony playing at a king, Nebuchadnezzar. Now we come to the attitude of the king. There's a real response here. And you know what happens. They get thrown into the furnace. But beginning at verse 19, Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude changed toward them changed. You see, this is why I think that that he was hoping. He still had some, some value that he placed in them. But now his attitude towards them changes. And uh, it doesn't change for the good. Judgment comes, and uh, well, we know what happens. The three men are overpowered by some very uh, strong bouncer-type soldiers of Nebuchadnezzar. They are bound, and when it speaks of them being bound here, it means that they are bound hand and foot. Their ankles are wrapped together. Their hands are bound as well. And notice it says that they were, they were wearing, verse 21, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes. And this is unusual because normally men would have been stripped naked and then bound and then thrown in. But this is happening very, very fast. Before any clothing can even be removed from them, they are bound hand and foot. And verse 23, they fell into the blazing furnace. Into the blazing furnace. And you'll also notice that it says here that Nebuchadnezzar made sure that the furnace was heated seven times hotter. That's just the Bible's way of saying it was real hot. It was as hot as, you know the next word. That's how hot it was. Now, notice what happens. The king is amazed, verse 24. And King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement. Now, we don't know exactly what this furnace looked look like, but we can, I think we can assume that it was a massive pit, things burning in the bottom of that pit, but there must have been a slope of land down toward that pit, like on a hillside. Nebuchadnezzar would have stood back on the hill, so he had, he had, he had a bird's-eye view of what was taking place. And the men who threw the three young men into the, into the fire, they got right to the edge, and they were consumed by the flames that came up as the three young men were thrown, were thrown in. Nebuchadnezzar looks down now from this, this vantage point and he, he sees what's taking place and he cannot believe what he, what he is seeing. And so presumably he, he, he inches his way closer, not to get so close that he would be consumed, but, but close enough that he could be heard. He leaped to his feet in amazement, verse 24. He said to his advisors, wasn't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? Now what happens when you throw men who are tied up hand and foot into a fire or into a pit? Can they stand up? No. Can they walk? No. Wasn't it three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? Certainly, O king. Verse 25, look, I see four men walking. Miracle one, 
Walking around in the fire. Unbound, miracle two. Unharmed, miracle three. Miracle four. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. There's someone else there in the furnace with them. And this someone else is not consumed like them. And Nebuchadnezzar notices that there's something about this fourth one. He, he, he looks divine. There's something angelic. There's something celestial. There's something all-powerful about this fourth one that is there in this furnace. And so he, makes, he, he then calls them out. He, he says, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abed, 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 Abednego, verse 26, servants of the Most High God, God, come out, come here. Notice he doesn't call for the, first guy to, for the fourth guy to come out. He doesn't want the son of the gods coming out. Not coming toward him at least. That would have been an interesting story. I want you to come out and I want you to come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, verse 26, came out of the fire. And the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They were all amazed. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched. And there was no smell of fire on them. Nebuchadnezzar is amazed. And so Nebuchadnezzar now finally makes this announcement. He's humbled and he confesses he has to eat his own words What God can save you out of my hands? He has to eat those words. And he professes now his admiration for them. And he says in verse 28, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any other god except their own God. Therefore, I decree that people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. Notice the last line. For no other God can save in this way. The theme of the passage is repeated again. So there you have the story. Now, what do we learn from it? As I said, there are about seven things that I could talk about this morning. I'm going to skip over a few of them. And I want to talk to you about four important things that I think we can learn from this passage, things that apply to us today. And the first is, I want to talk to you today about the catechism, the catechism of the word, of the world. Not the cataclysm, but the catechism of the world. This is a story of cultural pressure. The whole of Babylon is pressing in on these men. This is an attempt to get these devout Jews to conform to what the government wanted. The Bible makes it very, very clear that you and I as as followers of Jesus, that we have a threefold enemy. The world, the flesh, and the devil. When I talk about the catechism of the world, I'm talking about what the world teaches you, what the world propagates. You see, the world is the system of the world. We're not talking about the physical world per se. We're talking about the world, it's system. There's a system of thought, there's a a way that the world propagates as its way and it's always in rebellion against the living God. The system of the world is all about about teaching you and indoctrinating you against the living God. But then there's our flesh, our sinful nature. That's the internal struggle. We have the external struggle and pressure of the world. We have the internal struggle and pressure of our own sinful nature that, that propels us in sinful ways. And then finally, there is the devil himself. And the devil, as it were, energizes the flesh and he energizes the world so that the three of them work together, as it were, in pressuring us, getting us to conform. The Apostle John says that we should not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He's not talking about loving the people of the world. He's talking about loving the system, the way the system thinks. We're not to love it at all, he says. In Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul says that we are not to allow this world to, to, 
to, to squeeze us or to, to, we're not to conform, he says, to the pattern of this world. And the, the uh, J.B. Phillips uh, par- par- paraphrase of that is, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. There's a mold that the world has, and, and, and the world is trying to force you constantly into that, into that mold. And so there's a catechizing that goes on from the world. Some of us grew up in churches where we learned a catechism at an early age, the Heidelberg Catechism perhaps, which has a a question then followed by an answer and you memorize the question, then you memorize the answer and in so doing you you get indoctrinated, and I use the word positively here, you get indoctrinated into the things of Christian faith, into the doctrines and beliefs that we adhere to. But the world does the same. Kevin DeYoung, who is a member of the Gospel Coalition in the United States, a pastor who's well-known to many of you. He's written a number of amazing books, uh, published an article in the Gospel Coalition, the American Version website, back in August of this year, and the title of it was, The World is Catechizing Us, Whether We Realize It or Not. I'll come back to that in just a moment. Daniel 3, Statue. The statue becomes a symbol. It's a symbol for man. It's a symbol for one man. It's a symbol of a deified man. Symbol becomes an idol. And that's how it always goes. There is this pressure put on the Jews to conform. And friends, it must have been extremely hard for the Jewish people, the devout followers of the one true and living God, to resist when everyone else was doing it. That image of a man changes in every subsequent age, but the goal is always the same. The goal is always the same. In every era in which we have lived, the the world says, the image says to us, bow down to me or I will throw you into the fiery furnace of ridicule and mockery of your peers. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Weight of Glory, refers to this and he talks about an inner ring, the inner ring, he says. And the inner ring, he says, is, is the allure. He says it's the desire to be on the right side of an invisible line the right side of an invisible line that divides outsiders from insiders. You can come into our ring. You can be a part of us. We're where it's at. We're what's really important. And you're an outsider, but you can come in. It's an invisible line, but it's a tangible line. If you do this, you're in. If you don't, you're out. The constant pressure to conform. According to Lewis, he says, the power of this idol is so strong He says, of all the passions, the passion for the inner ring is the most skillful in making a man who is not yet a very bad man to do very bad things. And how often do we hear of individuals who succumb to pressure and give in and they do very bad things all because they want to be inside the inner ring This passage sees the same thing here. There are insiders and there are outsiders. If you're an insider, you're gonna bow down. If you're an outsider, sorry, you never will. Tough luck on you. Off with your head, into the furnace you go. There's a price to pay. There's pressure, there's indoctrination, there's brainwashing, there's catechizing. And it's all about you giving in. It's all about you submitting to this idolatry. Now, I want you to notice here that Daniel, um, Daniel says nothing against idols in this passage. This is an in- interesting thing because idolatry is all through the book, but Daniel never once says anything negative about idols. Yet if you read all the other prophets, you read Isaiah, you read Jeremiah, you read Ezekiel, you read all of the minor prophets, you read all of them, and they're constantly denouncing idolatry. But Daniel doesn't do that. He's living in an idolatrous land. But Daniel does something interesting in the passage, and most of us miss it when we read it, the passage, over. Daniel actually employs a literary device. And it's a device that should create humor. 
It's a device that creates laughter. And by laughter, I mean laughter that mocks. <laughs> That's what he does here. And how does he do it? Well, when you read this passage, several times you come across these long lists of names, right? You've got all of the government officials, and, and every single one of them is listed. Why doesn't Daniel just abbreviate and just say all the government officials? But he gives you every single name of, every, of all these officials. And then when you get to the music, when you hear the sound of the music, and it's, it's the harp and the lyre and the zither and all these instruments, and we don't even know what they look like. And there's these long lists of repetition that take place. And so when you and I read this, and accompanied with those long lists is this repetitive phrase, when you hear the sound, when you hear the sound, when you hear the sound of this music, and all the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the magistrates, and yada, 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 you're all supposed to bow down. So when one list goes with the music, and the other list responds, and they all bow down. I remember reading Daniel as a young believer and I can remember getting frustrated with, with this repetition of words and I didn't understand that Daniel had designed it this way in his writing because he, was, he did it this way so that you and I would laugh. So you and I would laugh at what is happening here in Daniel chapter three, that it is absolute foolishness. It is absolute mindlessness. As soon as you hear the sound, boom, down you go. John Lennox, in his book Against the Flow, writes this, when this passage is read out loud, it kindles laughter. You have to recite the long list of officials in musical instruments, the seemingly endless, redundant, verbose, tedious, superfluous, unnecessarily long, repetitive lists of officials and musical instruments are here for a reason. They intend to link the events in the story to mindless automaton behavior. There it is. Roman Catholic writer by the name of Hector Avalos writes this. When humans act as automatons or in an absent-minded manner, they become subjects of comedy. In the same manner, the iteration of enumeration in Daniel 3 is comedic because it serves to expose the mechanistic and thoughtless behavior of the pagan worshipers, of the pagan government bureaucracy in particular, and because it elicits laughter in the process, as soon as the instruments sound, the pagans genuflect in mass before a lifeless image without second thought. In effect, the iteration of enumerations helps to portray these pagans as a version of Pavlov's dog. Do you remember Pav Pavlov's dog, the famous Russian sci sci scientist who trained his dogs that whenever they heard the sound, the ringing of a bell, they would begin to salivate immediately because they knew they were about to be fed. Friends, that is exactly what you see happening here. Immediately, as soon as you hear the sound, what do you do? You bow down and you give your obeisance to a pagan king. In Psalm 135, the psalmist says this, listen to this, this is important. The idols of the nations are silver and gold made by the hands of men. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear, nor is there breath in their mouths. In other words, the, 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 the gods of the world are mindless. Then he adds this, those who make them, those who trust in them, those who serve them, those who bow down to them will be like them. They will be mindless as well. And so we see in this passage this automatic behavior. And frankly, friends, in Daniel 3, it's portrayed as an addiction, an addiction. You hear the sound, you bow. You hear the sound, you bow. An addiction. How many people behave like this with things like alcohol or drugs or porn? A mindless, automatic, bowing down and engaging before a lifeless thing 
And when people do, they forfeit something that is alive in themselves. Addictions are nothing more than a form of idolatry. An addict is simply in the grip of an idol, and he becomes like a robot. So let me come back to Kevin DeYoung's article of August 24. And here he's writing from an American vantage point, and he's writing just shortly after the Olympic Games. He talks about his love for the Olympics and how he wanted to watch the Olympic Games and did. And he writes here about this catechizing in the area of sexuality that's happening today. He says this, you couldn't watch two weeks of the Olympics or at times even two minutes without being catechized in the the inviolable truths of the sexual revolution. Earlier in the summer, I watched parts of the Euro, and you would have thought that the whole event was a commercial for the rainbow flag. DeYoung goes on and writes, it is worth remembering David Wells' famous definition. Worldliness is whatever makes righteousness look strange and sin look normal. Let me say that again. Worldliness is whatever makes righteousness look strange and sin look normal. Here's the reality facing every Christian in the Western world. The money, power, and prestige of the mainstream media, big-time sports, big business, big tech, and almost all of the institutions of education and entertainment are invested in making sin look normal. Make no mistake, make no, make no mistake, no matter how good your church, no matter how strong your family, no matter how gospel-centered your Christian school or homeschool, if your children or grandchildren are even remotely engaged with contemporary culture, and they are, they are being taught by a thousand memes and messages every week to pay homage to the rainbow flag. The Christian family, the Christian church, and the Christian school must not assume that the next generations will accept the conclusions that seem so obvious to older generations. We must talk about the things our kids are already talking about among themselves. We must disciple them. We must be countercultural. We must prepare them to love and teach them what biblical love really means. We must pass on the right beliefs and the right reasons for those beliefs. We must prepare our children and prepare ourselves that following Christ comes with a great cost. The Jesus who affirmed a marriage between a man and a woman the Jesus who warned of the porn, the porn within our own hearts, the Jesus who warned against living to be liked by others, this Jesus demands our total allegiance. The world is always busy promoting its catechism. The only question is whether we will get busy promoting ours. There's so much more that I could say on this point, but I think you get the point. The world is catechizing us and we must not allow the world to squeeze us into its mold. Let me say another thing. I want to talk now about the nature of true faith. In this passage, we are confronted with the nature of true faith. Now, it's a hard truth that's presented here, and here's essentially what the hard truth is. When those young men responded and said, God is able to save us, but if he doesn't, when they spoke those words, they were speaking a very hard truth that we need to come to terms with. And that truth is this. Faith does not demand that God rescue. Faith does not demand that God rescue. Rather, faith trusts God that he is able to do so, but he may not choose to do so. In other words, faith True faith really accepts he may not. He may not. This story does not hold out a false promise to us. Neither does God's word in its entirety. The false promise being that God will save every faithful follower of Christ from suffering and death. God does not. And our faith needs to grapple with those very things. We need to leave behind our infantile views of faith. 
We are given Hebrews chapter 11 and Hebrews chapter 12 in God's word for a reason. Hebrews 11 gives us a whole list of individuals who lived and walked by faith. And then when you get right to the beginning of chapter 12, we are told that we are surrounded by a great cloud of wit, 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 witnesses who are all these individuals in Hebrews 11. And then the writer says, and fix your eyes on Jesus. Don't fix your eyes on them. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Hebrews 11 and 12 are there for a reason. In Hebrews 11, you read of men and women who did great things by faith, who overcame great armies. We read of David who slayed Goliath. We read of of all of these great men and women of God who did incredible things and God delivered them. But in that list, there are also individuals who suffered and died and were tortured and were persecuted. And they were not delivered. And so the writer tells us, fix your eyes on Jesus who is able to rescue. But Jesus was not rescued. He went to the cross for our sins. Friends, when things go wrong in your life, it doesn't mean that your faith is absent. It doesn't mean that your faith is weak. When things go wrong in your life, it doesn't mean that you are somehow outside of God's will or outside of God's care. Of course not. Faith rests in this truth, the sovereign purposes of God. The next thing I want to say to you is that we need to underscore in our assembly here, in our family of believers here, the importance of sharing our stories. I don't know about you, but I'm so excited about this book. I love reading Daniel. I read Daniel 3 seven times last night before I went to bed. I just, I just, just taking it in. Just, there's something about the story. Now, it, it's a true story. And why, why did Daniel e- include this here? Because Israel felt like they were in a furnace. They had been taken into exile. They, they, their, their city was destroyed. Their temple was in ruins. They were being persecuted on a daily basis in a strange land. They couldn't sing the songs of Zion in a strange land. And so they needed a story. A story, and God gave them one, an incredible story to tell them that God is with them, to tell them that God can rescue them. Friends, we need to tell our stories to each, to each other. You, you each have a story. Some of you have lost someone recently. There was a young man at the, ni- the 9 o'clock service who came, who came to me in tears because his father died in India of COVID and he couldn't go back to see his father and the government won't allow his mother to come here and he can't go there and she can't come here and he's beside himself in grief. Some of you have had cancer and, and God has brought you through it or you're still suffering with it, but there's someone else who has it too, and they need to hear your story of God's grace and God's power. In the midst of what you are struggling, we need to tell our stories. And finally, I want to talk to you. In the few minutes that remain, I want to talk to you about the greatest comfort that comes from this story. Daniel chapter 3. You know what the greatest comfort is in this story? Here, here it is. Mark it down. God will be with us in the furnace. What? Like no response? Come on, people of God. God will be with us in the furnace. Amen? He will be with us in the furnace. This is what Israel needed to hear. They were in the furnace of opposition and persecution and affliction and suffering, and they were asking God to deliver them from the furnace, and they were given this story to comfort them, but the comfort didn't come from the fact that God could rescue them. The the comfort came from the fact that God came down to rescue them. He came down into the fiery furnace itself. And this is a great story, not only for them, but also for us. Some of us right now are in the midst of a fiery trial. In the last four weeks, I've had more conversations with people of our church who are in the midst of a fiery trial right now, in the last four weeks, than I've had in the past four years. We acknowledged at the beginning of this pandemic that our faith would be tried. We all knew and we all sensed that we were entering into uncharted waters. We knew that there were dangers ahead, that we knew that there were trials coming. But COVID has been accompanied 
by a whole pile of other pressures and trials that in many ways have shaken us and continue to shake us. And we feel the heat of this furnace. Brothers and sisters in Jesus, I want to remind you of the words of Peter. These have come, these trials have come so that your faith of greater value than gold which perishes, perishes though refined in the fire may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor on the day that Jesus Christ is revealed. I want to remind you today that you should not be surprised at the fiery trial that you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. I want you to remember the words of Peter again, that when you go through these sufferings and trials, remember this, that the Spirit of God and of glory rests on you. Now, what an amazing promise. The Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And remember that Jesus Christ came down to us and he entered into our fiery furnace and there were those 40 days when he was tempted by the evil one and seduced by the world to believe that he should bow down. Remember the words of Satan himself. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you'll just bow down and worship. He was tempted to idolatry. But he resisted and he remained true. Remember, friends, that he was despised and rejected, that he is a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering and with grief. Remember that he is able to rescue you and to sustain, to sustain, to, to sustain you. Remember that when you go through the waters, he will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For God says, I am the Lord your God, and I am the Savior of your souls. Remember that Jesus Christ has, been risen, from, has risen from the dead. An apparent impossibility. Brothers and sisters in Jesus, the risen, triumphant, over-death Jesus can enter into our suffering and struggles, and he can create life out of death. Hallelujah. Our Savior is with us in the furnace. He is the God who saves. Please stand. When John Wesley, the great evangelist, was on his deathbed, his words were these. The best is this, God is with us. Amen? God is with us. So go from this place today knowing that God is with you. Go from this place knowing that his power and his glory rests upon you. Go from this place confident that the Lord will be with you each step of your earthly journey and will finally bring you to your heavenly home. To him be all the praise and glory forever and ever. Amen.